Hi, welcome to Big Thinkers, Big Ideas. This is the APQC series where we ask some of the best and brightest to riff with us on what they know and what they're discovering. And I'm Dr. Carla O'Dell. I'm CEO of APQC, so thanks for joining us, and thanks for joining me for a very exciting speaker. We're, today we're going to be talking to Sandy Pentland of MIT, and for those of you with the liberal arts backgrounds or social scientists who were who feared that perhaps the digital world was going to leave you behind, no worries. Uh, Sandy has developed a new uh, science using data as the basis for social science, and you're going to hear a little bit more about that. So there's hope for all of us yet. And it's not surprising to me that, that Sandy's come up with exciting ideas and maybe even a new science. Uh, he works in one of the most exciting idea cauldrons in the world, the MIT Media Lab, where he directs the Human Dynamics Laboratory and the Media Lab Entrepreneurship Program. And he's also working with the World Economic Forum on big data and personal data initiatives. What will be interesting to some of our uh, listeners and readers is that Sandy has been quoted in New York Times, Vogue magazine, Nature Science, the Harvard Business Review, as well as Nova and Scientific American Frontiers. Of course, the most interesting, Sandy, is that you dined with British royalty and the president of India staged fashion shows in Paris, Tokyo, and New York and developed a method for counting beavers from space. That's the teaser. Yep. Before we get off the line, Sandy, at the very end, you got to tell us, in a nutshell, how you count beavers from space. <laughs> okay. So welcome, Happy to do that. Welcome, Sandy. Um we're just delighted to have you. I have read your new book, Social Physics, How Good Ideas Spread, Lessons from a New Science. And you said we're witnessing the birth of a whole new behavioral science, which you called social physics. So why do you say that, and what is it, and why is it important? Well, actually, the name social physics is almost two centuries old. It was the original name for things like sociology and so forth, but, um, and it was... The name was coined around 1800 when chemistry was just becoming a science and physics was really, you know, hitting its stride and so forth. But they sort of gave up on the social sciences uh, and stopped calling it social physics and went back to, to sort of weaker words because they didn't have enough data to really, you know, turn it into a hard predictive science. And the reason I called the book Social Physics is now we do have that sort of data. Uh, it's through things like social media and cell phones and things like that, things that are a bit scary in terms of privacy and, you know, where the world is going. But from a science point of view, you can, for the first time, have enough data to really understand how people actually interact. So I was right that for those liberal arts majors or social scientists, all they had to do was wait 200 years. <laughs> That's right. And they didn't even be too scared because, you know, while there is indeed a lot of math and stuff like that, the lessons are not ones that are alien. They're really, uh, it's one of these things where what the data does is it lets you start between a lot of alternatives. Uh, it's like, you know, if you, if you see something, you can come up with 10 different explanations. What the data does is it tells you which one's the right explanation. Yeah. So tell us, what are some of the things you've, you've found? I mean, what are... What have you used data to find out? You said some of the things we think we know about uh, how ourselves and how society works are wrong. What's wrong? How would you find that out? And what should we be thinking according to the data? 
Well, I think that the biggest one has to do with creativity, and I think that's a theme that's going to come up in our conversation several times. You know, we're we're taught that uh, you know it's these lone geniuses that somehow sit in a room and come up with these ideas, uh, but that doesn't seem to be the truth. What it seems to be is people who connect ideas from different communities, people who are they're like bees. They're going around and harvesting different ideas and trying to put them together into something new. Those are the guys that come up with uh, the new ideas and the things that spread. Uh, so, so it turns out what the data tells us is we can be a little more modest about ourselves. There's, there's no big brain super scientists. They're all regu- we're all regular people. It's just some of us are a little better at harvesting ideas than other people. What makes us better, Sandy? What what techniques do the? I mean, what's the data tell you about that? How can we be better? Well, you know, the the other thing that the data tells us is uh, that you know uh, we have patterns that are really typical and characteristic of humans uh, that are not the normal sort of things you get taught in psychology classes or or business school or things like that. And you really, again, have to be a little bit humble about the human race. Is that, you know, we're a social species. A couple hundred thousand years ago, we weren't all that much different than apes. Um, and when those couple hundred thousand years ago, we had signals that had to do with dominance and, you know, fear and interests and things like that. And we still have those signals today. And we also had ways of, working together to get a consensus within a group. And uh, those things, you still see them in meetings today in an organization. So the, the patterns of interaction, independent of the content, uh, tell us about half of the story. And, and I know that people have you know, said this, you know, your body language matters and so forth. But for the first time, we have real data to show this and show what those patterns are. And, you know, one of the patterns is the one I just said about harvesting ideas is the source of creativity. It's not sitting in a room by yourself. The You know, you, so I want to pursue two things you brought up there. First of all, I keep talking about the data with capital T, capital D. Tell the folks what the data is, where it comes from, and why it's different than what we've historically thought of as data. Well, so... Well, the thing that's really different from sort of science point of view is that if you look at where people have gotten data about human behavior, where we have all these theories about ourselves, it's all either experts, you know, people with PhDs who are watching other people and taking notes, or it's survey data, or it's sort of some simple counts, like how many people live here versus there. And uh, all of those methods had a lot of errors in them. Like, for instance, we did an experiment where we compared people's survey data to what they could actually be measured uh, using computers and stuff like that. And we found that the survey data had an accuracy of about 50%. People just didn't remember things like who they talked to during the day. So what we did is, what I did is I built little badges, like name badges, that had... Uh, little IR receivers, like, you know, in your TV remote. So when two people come together, the two little name badges see each other and shake hands and, you know, write down that, oh, these two people actually talked for a while. 
And, and so you get real objective data about the pattern of conversation. Now, we never record words and things like that because words are very slippery things, and it freaks people out to have the idea that, you know, somebody's recording your words all of the time. But, but folks don't mind so much if it's, you know, sort of just, oh, you two guys talk. Because, you know, we're used to having people be able to see that we're talking. We talk in the hall. We talk in you know, the coffee, et cetera. And, and that's all that it records. But because it does it really accurately for the first time, we can really know how ideas begin to spread. And you've got huge data sets where you sometimes have one or two million uh, pieces of data on a group's interaction. So it's, it's pretty robust data. Oh, yeah. In terms of normal uh, social science experiments, it's orders of magnitude better. It's not a few million. It's a, it's a few billion pieces of data. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we'll do right. things like go into a, a, a small community and have people either uh, you know, sort of record everything about them. I mean, you know, they all know they're in an experiment and get paid for it. But, um, you know, we record everything about them for up to a year so that you can really look at how friendships form and, how ideas spread and and things like that. I just had this image. Did you ever see the movie Her, where Joaquin Phoenix fell in love with his operating system? Yeah, yeah. I just had the the image of two badges falling in love with each other. <laughs> Being able We've to got to stop seeing each other like this, right? Right, yeah. or when <laughs> yeah, exactly, or when like when Badge cheated on another. No, I don't know. Never mind. Oh, oh let's yeah. stop there. So one of the things that I think is interesting from a perspective of a person listening who might be running a change initiative inside their corporation or a knowledge management program is that we can um, say to people, you know, peer pressure does matter. I think that was one of the things you found was the social pressure and social modeling really does matter on uh, causing behavior change in human beings. We know that does in a life uh, face-to-face setting. So if you if you see somebody on the street who looks like they're hurting and looks like everybody around you is ignoring it like there's nothing there, you may be more prone to not help that person either. But if once yep. somebody starts to help, you dramatically start to help. So uh, and the whole everybody will start to help. So it's about the power of heroes and the setting a social uh, setting of mm-hmm. role modeling, I guess. Anyway, um, say some more about that. If we were living in a virtual world. How that might, how what you're finding out might help us help each other more in our virtual world. Well, so what you're referring to is is a really interesting thing. Is that um, the way cognitive science, the way psychology, the way economics thinks about people as is as isolated individuals, but as you just pointed out, we really affect each other. And some of the things that the data that I collect tell us is that. You know, most of our learning comes from copying other people. You see somebody do something, it looks like it works, you try it too. You don't even think about it. You just sort of try these things out. And that's what we call culture, right? You know, learning to act by observing each other. Uh, and it's, it's perhaps the most powerful force in figuring out or, or making an organization work. And a lot of what drives it, as you said, is social pressure. So, you know, if you're not doing what other people are doing, you're causing them problems, and they're going to give you a little bit of grief or 
a little bit of encouragement, and that's going to, you know, make you more likely to fit in with the other people. And and that's really the stuff of organization, uh, and not the individual, you know, paycheck or the, you know, the check uh, checklist or things like that. Those individual incentives aren't nearly as strong as as the social incentives. I think there's a lot so that, of data from a lot of disciplines that support that. That's, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think we could do better at in uh, our change and knowledge management initiatives is setting, telling people what those norms are and then making sure that even if we have to engineer it, we have people modeling that norm. For example, in a community of practice, it's all virtual. It'd be very easy for people to just lurk and never respond to a request yep. for information or help. But if we set the norm that we expect you to do that, you know, as soon as you know, at least once a month and maybe once a week, and then people who are clearly uh, valued members of that world do it more often as well, and then you get, then you can build up the reciprocity and start feeding all kinds of other ape-like characteristics. But yeah. Uh, human characters. Human. Yeah, I mean, the, the, you asked about the the virtual, and you know what we see is that, in some ways, the the electronic or the virtual is a rather pale version of of face to face. So, uh, for instance, the most successful way that uh, virtual relationships spread is by leveraging face to face relationships. So, you know, if we actually meet together sometimes it's more likely that you'll pick up the behavior of using some new software tool and that we'll actually begin using it together than if we've never met each other. So, you know, it's as if you're augmenting the face-to-face, -face, not replacing the face-to-face. -face. Yeah. Another thing that we find is when people are upset or when they're really excited, they go for rich channels of communication, not the abstract sort of email text types of things. So you're right. We can uh, create, we can augment the, fa the, the virtual world with, with some face-to-face -face that then gives us a little more of that rich texture that we get from face-to-face. It lets you read each other better. It also uh, sets up social pressure. I mean, if you're actually present with somebody, you, you feel a little bit more like you have to cooperate and you know, adhere to the norm. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing you mentioned uh, in the book, which I thought was prof had profound impact in organizations, was the role of uh, exploration and engagement on idea flow and creativity. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, it, it's sort of the, maybe the, the key thing in terms of uh, building up an organization that's both productive or innovative. So the, the engagement is uh, essentially getting everybody on the same page. It's, it's in part the social pressure, but it, it's really um, are people working together to work out the ideas of what you're supposed to do. And actually the measurement, nice little mathematical measurement, which is the likelihood of people actually talking to each other that are in the same way uh, work group. And what we find is that that's the biggest factor in productivity, much bigger than personality type or individual IQ, average IQ, or 
uh, years in the job, things like that, is is are all is everybody in the loop? What's engagement? And then the other thing is is this exploration, which is uh, harvesting ideas from outside the work group. Because if the work group just talks to itself, pretty soon it becomes stuck in a rut. You need to bring things in from outside. And interestingly, in most corporations, that's sort of against the rules. There's an org chart, and you're supposed to communicate up or to the left wherever there's that little line between the boxes. But we find regularly that the most innovative people are the ones that ignore the org chart. And the most innovative groups are the ones that have lots of people that are, you know, talking to everybody else, bringing in different perspectives that are then shared within the group. And that's this engagement and exploration. Uh, it, it, you want to think of it as, how do I get the right set of ideas in everybody's head? Well, you've got to share them with people. You've got to have everybody in the loop. And then you've got to be bringing new ideas in all the time. I think that's why communities of practice can be effective is if they're if they they sort of are a legitimate way inside of organizations to cross boundaries that the formal boundaries yeah. still exist but they're not relevant when we're talking about ideas and knowledge so we, you get a pass you know you get permission to go across them and I think that's yeah. why they help they that's where all those connectors and bumblebees uh, can do their you, work you bet you bet and I wish you know one of the prime things that I think we need as a community to do is we need to make sure that managers and leaders understand that the communities of practice need to cut across those little silos and, and boxes uh, in order to have really best practice and to have innovation. Yeah. And, and a lot of the technology now enables us to cross what we have, what we found, Sandy, is that the how important the face-to-face -face is. We talked about that before, especially when you're talking to people who you don't have a normal interaction with because they're not in your yep. group, they're not in your discipline. Uh, one of the things that we've found is that organizations, especially technical ones that'll hold technical conferences, you know, once or twice, three times a year, and invite people from all over the corporation who are interested in that issue, regardless of their current discipline, those tend to be the, the platform from which all these, many of these great ideas come. So it's a combination of expanding your definition of community, putting in some face-to-face, -face, and then putting a little bit of structure around it so that these people can find each other. Yep. Seems to, to me, when I read your book, I went, oh, that's why that works. Well, that's great to hear, yeah, because, I mean, that's, that's really what you're trying to do with all this big data is come up with, you know, we have a feeling about a lot of things, but why does it really work? And exactly how does it work? And that's, I think, the progress that we're making. So all the work with the measuring things and the badges and the math, the idea is to get back to human understanding, right? Because right. that's what it matters. What's your opinion on um, the, the use of large data sets like Twitter and, and others for sentiment analysis, where I guess in that case they actually do a text analysis of it, just what's the is the science behind that good enough that we should pay attention to it? Well, I'm a, a skeptic of of that stuff, um, and the reason is is that natural language understanding is not all that good, and the meaning of any particular little sentence is so dependent on context. 
that it's that it's hard to to get much out of it. I mean, you can get some sort of general things. Uh, the other thing is is that what you do on something like Twitter is really just your social face. It's not actually necessarily what you really believe or what you really do. I mean, you'll say, oh, yeah, I always do this. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so you're listening to, uh, you know, a mask that someone has put on in any case. Uh, so I much prefer to look at actual behavior. You know, did they go there? Mm-hmm. Not did they say they went there? Mm-hmm. You know, did they talk? Not did they say they talked? And uh, because that's, that's much more truthful. You know, that said, you can do some things with Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. But generally what you have to do is come up with a way to get a large number of people all tweeting about exactly the same thing. And if you get a 1,000 people doing that, then you can sort of average out the contacts, you can average out the ambiguity, and you can get a pretty good sense of what's going on for for that thing. But that's not very fine-grained or granular, right, because you need to average – a thousand people about a specific event. You know, as long as we're riffing off this for a moment, talk about the wisdom of crowds. I remember in your book you talk about a trading company. What was it, eToro, I think? Yeah, yeah eToro. Yeah, talk about a Twitter. Tw- it's really interesting because it's, it's like Twitter, except this is one where they're buying and selling gold and stocks and, you know, euros and stuff like that. And so what that means is that you can see how well the ideas and strategies they adopt do. So if someone's making good decisions, they'll make money. If they're making poor decisions, they'll lose money. And you can ask, well, what sort of social networking really leads you to make better decisions? And what we find is a very clear thing, which is people who try and go it alone don't do very well. People who spend all their time, you know, listening to other people and being super social, they don't do very well either. And the reason they don't do well, just like the people who are uh, isolated, is that there's actually, if everybody is sort of engaging in this orgy of, you know, social interchange, turns out there's not very many new ideas in there. It's just sort of fad after fad after fad. Uh, the people who do really well have a really diverse set of things that they pay attention to. So it's, it's not so much the quantity of social interaction as making sure that it cuts across all those silos, that you hear the different voices. Uh, and the people that do that in the eToro uh, thing make 30 and 40% more money than the people that do it alone or the people that are super social. And I think that's a, a general lesson. This is, you know, you have to be careful using these social media because you can. it's real easy to overdo it. It's real easy to have other people overdo it. And you get the impression that, oh, everybody believes X, right? Well, maybe not. Maybe it's just everybody's following each other and it's the same opinion just being repeated and repeated. And that'll bring you into rocky territory. I think I see that happening in consulting firms if they're not careful that all the various large professional service firms will hop onto an idea at the same time and they breathe each other's exhaust. That's right. Yeah. 
and that you see that I, I used to have a rule of thumb which I actually have I need to put it into practice again which is to go to one conference a year on some field that's nothing related to what I do like for example uh-huh. I remember in the year 2000 I went to the International Book Fair they have it in Los Angeles you know one time and six months later in Frankfurt mm-hmm. and I had no idea until I went to that how powerful the web was going to be for content delivery, which made a big difference at APQC, and how frightened the book publishers were about Amazon. And that made it, you know, it was was like an eye-opening experience. And I think that that's part of what happens when we bring people together from different disciplines is they just had no idea. And you you can kind of adopt, you know, it sets us. It's such a high impact uh, experience because it's new that I think mm-hmm. some of those ideas are more are a little bit more likely to make it into your work than otherwise because it's so high impact to draw on another cognitive science right now. Um, yeah. Just a thought on that. I think I think you're really really onto something here. Do you have anything you could share with us about? Uh, besides the role modeling, anything that kind of predicts the transfer of a best practice or adoption of a new behavior in a group? Predicts it, yeah. Well, you can look at the strength of uh, the social ties, the amount of interaction between people uh, to sort of get a sense of how tightly coupled the group is and how, you know, basically how, how, how much they're all on exactly the same page. And when you get a really tightly coupled group, what happens is any idea that makes it, makes it everywhere almost immediately. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, you know, so that's, that can be good in one sense, like if you have to group that reacts to an emergency, but it's that echo chamber that you see in social media. It's like suddenly there's a fad. And you need to have something where there's enough diversity in terms of people who aren't all in the loop. They're, they're bringing things in from outside. They're validated for that. It's, it's, they're rewarded for that. So it's not necessarily that they're contrarians, but their thing is suggesting that there might be a better way to do it or a different way to do it. And you need to set up a situation where that's uh, really valued because, you know, that is the source of innovation. And if you don't have that, you end up making really bad mistakes. Mm-hmm. I think that you're right. If I, sometimes in addition to bringing in people or having people who bring in new ideas, you can take people out and expose them to new ideas. Again, it's a very high-impact way to do it, too. And I think benchmarking has yeah. had influence on doing that. I'm going to switch gears on you. I'm so intrigued by this concept of the new deal on data. And I personally know how much data I must be giving out because if I buy something on the web or even ask about it, the next time I go on the web, I'm getting ads about it. It's creepy, Sandy. It is. Yeah, I just this this afternoon, I, I was looking at the new Ford Mustang and so now in my news feed, I got something about some poor guy whose car got smashed in Saginaw, Michigan. <laughs> what? Why did they say, yeah, they're like dumb computers trying to think of stuff. Yeah, so the new uh, new deal on data is, I think, uh, uh, something that I have a, a passion about because, 
you know, as you said, it's creepy, the sort of stuff that goes on. And when I started working with this stuff, I realized two things. One was there's some really good things you could do with it. Um, you can have a level of transparency and accountability. You can really, you know, understand how things work, all that to the good. But you could use it like 1984 and, you know, the, the boss is spying on you all the time. And that's really bad. And what I thought was, is, you know, we had to come up with a way to deal with all this new data because we've never had this before. We have no social norms for it. You know, just don't know what to do with it. And I came up with this idea of the New Deal on data, um, which is, you know, harkens back to the, the New Deal during the Depression where you know, people changed the rules. And the New Deal basically says, you know, if you're going to have a, a, a good, sustainable digital ecology, something where the, the data is a positive force, then people have to have control over their own data. You can sort of think of it like digital democracy versus, you know, digital you know, serfdom or digital slavery. Today, you don't know what people are collecting about you. And that's, that's like, you know, back in the Middle Ages where the, you know, the, the king owned every, I mean, literally owned everybody. And we need to have a little bit of a revolution here where people have a lot more control over, you know, what's collected about them and, and what's done with it. That's particularly true outside of companies, right? So, you know, people spying on your buying behavior or where you go and things like that. But I think it also applies within companies uh, where people need to be bought into uh, data, behavioral data that's collected about them. Uh, and that's the new deal, basically. And so for the last several years, uh, six years actually, I've run a discussion group at Davos World Economic Forum about this where, you know, we have the chairman of, you know, Vodafone and the president of Bank of America and so on and so forth, along with people like the chairman of the Public Trade Commission or the Justice Commissioner of uh, Europe and and discuss this. And, and I think that there's been a real swing that says that, you know, people really should have more of a say about their data and the regulators are going to be pushing on this. And it's a different way of doing business than what most companies do today. Uh, I like to think of it as being more respectful of the employees or the customers, that you are engaging with them about, you know, what's going on as opposed to just doing it behind their back. And also where you're in some sense splitting the, uh, the value that derives from that. So, for instance, when we go into a, a, a company and measure the, the flow of ideas within the company, which is a critical thing for mergers, for uh, improving productivity and things like that, one of the main things we do is we don't let the, the management have the data. We hold the data, and we show everybody at the same time what the data is, and the data is aggregated so that you can't see embarrassing things. You can't see when so-and-so went to the bathroom. You can't see, you know, that somebody's chatting up the new person in sales or what, you know. It's just these sort of general flows of ideas that are available, and then people talk about it. And what we find is, is that, you know, people find that really insightful to look at this sort of general map, because that's what it is, a map of behavior, 
and they realize that, oh, maybe nobody actually does talk to customer service. Maybe that's why it never works out very well, or maybe everybody just talks to their own group, and that's why things are sort of stuck in a rut. People are not dumb. Uh, if you share these sort of maps of behavior with people and so respectful of them, and you get informed buy-in by everybody, which is what you need to actually move things forward. I, I think you're, have, this has profound implications for uh, what we think of as knowledge analytics in organizations, the ability to see where the who's connecting to whom, the, you know, the social network analysis and that map you're talking about. And I do think the privacy question, I have one, one more question about that, uh, which is I am so thrilled that you are talking to people about this but to get me me as a consumer or individual to agree, are you just going to add another paragraph to a 19-page terms and conditions thing <laughs> I click on and never read anyway? Yeah. So one of the one of the things that was pretty clear at the beginning of these uh, World Economic Forum discussions is that the terms and conditions stuff has to go away. That's Yay. just crazy. It's not respectful. It uh, you know who knows what's in there. Even the people that make it up don't really know what's in there. It has to be a little more granular. It also has to be something where, um, you know, I think I think of it a little bit like how you treat money. Now, when you uh, put money in a mutual fund, what you're doing is you're hiring someone to advise you about it and make sure you don't do stupid things. And I think data, these sorts of issues are pretty complicated. It, we need to have like a personal data bank that helps us manage data that's about us so that you know, so people don't go you know, selling data about us without us knowing about it where they don't or we don't get any value for it. I mean, I, I really think that, you know, to move to this sort of digital democracy area, uh, we're going to need to have some sort of mechanism like data banks, you know, personal data banks. Uh, that help us uh, combat the big guys because the danger in this new world is the, the company or the government or whatever that has so much data, it's amazing. Uh, you need to have a countervailing force to, to make it come out in a way that people are going to be pleased with. Sounds to me like an opportunity for one of your entrepreneurs at MIT to start a business on data banking to capture all these digital breadcrumbs we're leaving behind. You bet. <laughs> I think there's going to be a whole new industry around this, uh, which uh, and the consumer will be powerful by banding together. Uh, and I think that it'll be a really interesting, you know, next decade or two. Sandy, I'm just thrilled you're going to be keynoting. Uh, it's on, I'm going to let our listeners and readers know you're going to be keynoting on May 1st of 2015, which is just around the corner at APQC's 20th Knowledge Management Conference. And I think the kind of things you're talking about, the messages for knowledge management professionals about knowledge sharing behaviors, around collaboration uh, and innovation are going to be profound. Any any uh, other things you think you might wish they knew? Well, um, I think the things I'm going to focus on are this sort of engagement and exploration and how that uh, leads to, to better idea flow and how you can manage that. Uh, 
the notion of what happens with these new digital media and how they're different from traditional media and how you need to be careful of them in certain ways because otherwise you end up in this echo chamber and making bad choices. Uh, the notion of having, you know, decisions being something that is really uh, requires having diversity of ideas. It's a little different than the normal sort of diversity thing. Uh, it's not, you know, the, you know, the labels on the people. It's the diversity of ideas that really matters. I want to emphasize that. And then finally, of course, you know, the new deal on data. I think it, to have this be something that's going to be a real technology, a real boon to companies and practitioners, you have to respect the employees and the customers. You need to have this sort of new deal. Well, I know that I could talk to you all day, so it's a good thing that <laughs> we're out of time, or I would. Uh, I'm really glad you're going to join us at the conference, Sandy. I'm uh, pleased to. We'll, we'll get to talk at the conference, right? That's right. And just to remind everyone that we're going to be, we hope they will all join us for uh, sharing big ideas and big thinkers at APQC's 20th Annual Knowledge Management Conference here in Houston, April 30th and May 1st of 2015. If you'd like to learn more about Sandy and the other keynote speakers, uh, you can go to the APQC website, www.apqc.org, or you can go to uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble and look at Sandy's book or his website. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day, and we'll talk to you soon.